This is an exciting time for uh, us as individuals following the Lord and us as a church together at the well. Let me, let me just say, we're going to take a look at the very heart of discipleship when we look at Moses' life. Uh, the very heart of discipleship is simply this. Whatever the Lord calls you to, whether it is massive or kind of minute, or if it's this huge sacrifice or simple, whatever He calls you to, it's just saying yes over and over and over again to Him. It is following Him wherever He calls you to go, whatever He calls you to do, whatever He calls you to say or not say or believe or not believe. It's simply saying yes to the Lord. And I'm so grateful for Moses' life, which is going to act as a guide to take us there into the very heart of discipleship to Christ as individuals uh, who, who today, you might be sitting at the precipice of, should I say yes to him in this? And as a church together, we are at the precipice of saying, Lord, we want to say yes to you in generosity, that when you provide the next permanent space for us here in Silver Spring, we could say yes to it. Man, what a joy it's going to be to take a look at Moses' life and follow him into the heart of discipleship. I'm so grateful that it's Moses that we're following there. Uh, maybe you see, saw, you know, uh, Charlton Heston when he played Moses in the Ten Commandments. If you're old, you saw it. Uh, maybe uh, if you're young, every Easter they often play it. You, you saw Charlton Heston, and, and he was this kind of burly, like uh, uh, Moses meets Schwarzenegger kind of guy. And when the Lord called him to say yes, of course, he's like, yeah, I got this, right? Or maybe then you watch Prince of Egypt. And you saw Moses, he's like leaping from rooftop to, to rooftop. It's like uh, Moses meets Aladdin. And he's like ageless and sly and so cool. And you're like, man, I want to be like that. Certainly he could say yes. But both of those are lacking one thing, reality. See, when Moses stands before the Lord to say yes to him, He's 80 years old. He's been wandering the desert for 40 years. He's met his wife out there and they're having kids and he's just trying to stay away from Egypt because he's a fugitive there and they're after him to kill him. And the Lord steps in and Moses has a question. Will you say yes or not? It's the same question that each of us have today and our church has today. Will we say yes to the Lord and step deeper into his discipleship and see him do massive things through us? Ordinary, fickle, sinful, undergunned out man people. Ordinary people who God in an extraordinary way worked through Moses, mighty work through us in the same kind of way. What I want to do this morning is I want to take us just, uh, what brings uh, Moses to that moment of saying yes? What, what kind of leads up to that say yes moment? And then in that moment, we get the worst promise of God you've ever heard. And I want us to look at that. It's the, it's the lamest, worst promise of God we've ever heard. And, and that's what pushed Moses over the hump into saying yes to our Lord. And might it be the same for us. So let's look at the background. In Moses' life, we're going to be uh, predominantly in, in the book of Exodus. The, uh, the coming out book. The, the being released book. It's the story of Moses' life. And let's take a look at the background of what gets us to that moment of saying yes to God. Exodus chapter 21. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and so on and so on. What we see here is there's a backstory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had made promises back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And, and Jacob was one of Abraham, Isaac's, and then Jacob was a son of them. And, and Jacob birthed the, the 12 tribes of Israel, one being Joseph. And Joseph uh, is then sold by his brothers into slavery, and they think he's dead, and uh, might be dead or certainly enslaved, and, and he ends up in Egypt. And in Egypt, uh, he wonders, am I forgotten by the Lord? He is in a prison, and uh, he starts interpreting dreams for people in the prison. Then Pharaoh has a dream, and, and he's wondering, what does this dream mean? And, and he's told, there's this guy, Joseph, and he can interpret dreams. So Joseph is brought to Pharaoh, and, and Joseph is there, one of the 12 brothers uh, of the sons of Jacob. And he's there, and he interprets the, tree, the dream for Pharaoh. And the interpretation is so perfect that there's going to be years of absolute abundance in Egypt and years of famine. And because Joseph uh, interprets the dream correctly, the Pharaoh says, why don't you take hold of the, the whole nation of Egypt? And he makes him his right-hand man. And then Joseph's brothers are here in Canaan, in the promised land, in Israel, where uh, they're, uh, the promise of God had said, you'll live there. But, but they're starving in famine. And so they say, gosh, we've got to go to Egypt where there's plenty. And lo and behold, they meet Joseph there. And Joseph says, uh, he recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him. Remember, they've sold him into slavery. Uh, but he feeds them and he cares for them, gives them an abundance. Then they recognize there's this amazing embrace. And, and the Pharaoh says to Joseph, man, you and your family are going to flourish here in Egypt as long as they live. There was only about 70 of them at the time. They grow to 600,000 numbers, tells us. And when they're around 600,000, that pharaoh has died, and another pharaoh is on the throne. And we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And that's just what this new pharaoh does. He takes God's people, the Israelites, and, and he enslaves them. And then he takes away the necessary resources for bricks because as they're enslaved, what he sees, the, the more they're pressed, the more they multiply. They just keep growing and growing and growing. And, and so he, he enslaves them. He takes away their resources to make bricks, and, and, and they have to keep making the same number. And then he comes up with this plan. He says to the Hebrew midwives, those who are delivering the babies of the Hebrews, he says, if a son is born, down in verse 16, kill him. When you're in the labor room and, and a son is birthed, suffocate him and put him out and say he was born to kill. But the Hebrew midwives, they fear the Lord. They do not fear Pharaoh. And, and so they don't do this. And, and the Hebrews keep expanding in number. And the Egyptians are, are more and more concerned because they know if they're attacked, maybe these Hebrews will join the enemy and overtake them. And, and so Pharaoh says, what are you doing, Hebrew midwives? And they're saying, man, th these Hebrew women, they're just so lively. When we get there, they've already given birth. And they're lying to the Pharaoh because they fear the Lord. They do not fear the Pharaoh. And then the Pharaoh says, then do this. Everyone two years and older, if he is a son, throw him in the Nile and let him be thrown. It's in that scene where Moses
Jesus is born. He is not a mighty man. He is not a sly figure. He has nothing. He's a slave born to slaves. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket made of bulrushes. Moses is born. He has an older sister, Miriam, and an older brother, Aaron. And, and Moses is born, and, and just like every mom does, looks right in the face of Moses and says, that's a fine boy. <laughs> he is so wonderful. So she hides him for three months, and, and it's hard to hide a newborn baby when the Egyptians are looking to kill this newborn baby, uh, and this baby is squawking, and, and you're kind of tucking him away in your house. So she realizes, I can't hide him any longer, and she puts him in this basket she makes of rushes and, and puts tar in it so it'll float in the Nile River. And then she hides it among these reeds. And you can bet she has a, a plan of faith, but she has no idea what her God will do to save her third-born son. M- Miriam, Moses' sister, is there. She hides a bit off. And, and Pharaoh's daughter comes to the Nile River, and we see the sovereignty of God at work in a faithful plan. And, and Pharaoh's daughter is, you know, maybe she hears the cries and, and comes a bit closer and sees this is a baby. This is a Hebrew baby who's circumcised. On the eighth day. And instead of obeying the orders of her father to slay this child and dump him in the Nile, she is embraced with pity. She lifts little Moses out. And, and then here comes Miriam, Moses' uh, sister, uh, and, and says, How? What a baby you found there. Uh, why don't I find a Hebrew midwife who can nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter says, that's a great idea, and Miriam runs home to her mom and Moses' mom and says, come and nurse your own child, and Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll pay you to do it, and we see the sovereign hand of our God working behind the scenes to bring about the deliverance he will bring through this baby, and Moses is raised First by his mother for a while, and then at some point, maybe when he's 20 or 30, he's handed over to the Pharaoh's daughter to be her son. Must have been a heartbreaking day. In the midst, Pharaoh's daughter raises Moses up as her own son, most likely to take the throne of the Pharaoh himself. But when Moses is about 40, he decides, this is verse 11 of chapter 2, one day when Moses has grown up, he went out to his people. He decides, no longer are the Hebrews my people. I will go out to my people. I will leave the riches of Egypt and go uh, live among and rescue my people. And he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way, and he looked that. And seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian down, and he buried him in the sand. He's made a choice. I will leave the riches of Pharaoh. I will leave the the scholarly education I was receiving. I'll I'll leave all the arts and and, and all the hieroglyphics. I'll I'll leave it all. And and he goes to his people and he strikes this Egyptian down. And and then a couple days later he sees these two Hebrews. They're also fighting. He says to the one who's in the wrong, he says, what are you doing? And that one in the wrong, that Hebrew fighting another Hebrew says, what are you going to do, Moses? Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? Moses realized words out. His people know what he's done. He's killed this Egyptian and buried him in the sand. 
someone did see. As Pharaoh himself hears the news and, and we hear that Pharaoh now decides to pursue and kill Moses. He's a fugitive on the run. So Moses runs into the wilderness, the desert, uh, the Sinai Peninsula outside of Egypt, though claimed by Egypt for rule. And he's out in the desert, this hilly, dry, arid land, and and he finds uh, shepherds. And there he finds his wife, who ends up being the daughter of one of these uh, priests of all these shepherds there after he rescues them. And he goes on to live some 40-odd years getting closer to that precipice, that moment where God will call him a vagabond, a son of slaves, because now he's an outcast, a fugitive on the run, some 80 years old now, to do something he could never do on his own. You see, Moses' life is summarized in, in, in these 40s. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving this sermon of the history of Israel, and in there he talks about Moses and these kind of 40-year stints, and, and D.L. Moody captures it uh, only as D.L. Moody can. He says, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and 40 years discovering what God could do with a nobody. See, we're all on that stage somewhere, uh, uh, thinking we're a somebody in the riches of Egypt, or then realizing... Oh, my Lord, I do not have what it takes to follow you or live a life that you've called me to live. And then in that moment, God steps in and shows Moses, this is what I can do to a nobody. (laughs) Moses gets closer to the burning bush. Moshe, Moshe, God calls out. See, God had decided what he would do. Uh, It's captured uh, for us in chapter 2, verse 23 and following. Moses is out there thinking God has forgotten him and his people. In chapter 2, verse 23, God says this, During those many days the king of Egypt had died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God had worked in this sovereign plan to bring Moses to this moment, and God knew what he would do. God would come down, he says it succinctly in summary in chapter 3, verse 8. I have come, God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They are enslaved in Egypt, but I, God, have come down to deliver them. This is what I will do, God says. I know what I will do, and I will do it. Why will I do this, God says? Verse 24, I love the way that this is captured. God heard their cry and saw their plight. God in heaven, he hears our cries and morning you might think God is not listening he has no idea what's going on you're in turmoil and he says I hear you I see you and then he steps in why because he remembered why not only does he see not only does he hear does he know what his people are going through but he remembers he he remembers what he remembers his promises 
He remembers back in Genesis 12 when he said to Abraham, he said, I will make you a great people and, and I'll give you this land of blessing in Canaan. You're, you're enslaved now, but it, it will be yours and, and I'll bless you to bless others. See, God remembers his promises to his people. He says it even this specifically in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, but, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I, God, what will I do? I will deliver. Why? Because I've heard their cries. I have seen their plight. And I've remembered the covenant promise I made with my people. I will be their God. You, you, you'll live in this life of turmoil as though uh, you think you've been forgotten. You'll be enslaved. But I will raise up a deliverer to bring you out, to exodus you, says the word in his promise. And Moses is walking along. He's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, counting the years to his death. Out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And the Lord says, what will I do? Why will I do it? Who will I do it through you? And the scriptures call us co-laborers with Christ. And he calls out to Moses, Moshe, Moshe, as he's, as he's wandering the wilderness, he, uh, uh, not uh, assuming that God has any remembrance of his plan with him. Not assuming that God has remembered his promise to his people, thinking he is alone and outcast and fugitive. Moses is on the very precipice of this history-changing moment of saying yes to the Lord. And we know the story, right? Moses is out there in the uh, Sinai Peninsula at Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. He's wandering around, and, and he sees there this burning bush, which is not abnormal in the desert there. Uh, des uh, in the desert, bushes were even known to just spontaneously combust and catch on fire because of the heat, but then they would burn out. This bush is not burning out. Moses walks onto Mount Sinai, and he sees this bush burning, and he thinks, man, that's a strange bush. It's burning, but it's not burning out. And, and he turns to give attention, and, and God calls out, Moshe, Moshe, the one drawn out who will draw out his people. The same way that he calls out Paul when he surprises him on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, repetition of name. He says, I am going to call you into something that's way beyond what you can do. It's way beyond what you can do. God says to Moses, take your shoes off. Even that inch has you too high. <laughs> Get your feet into the dust of the ground and realize you are standing on holy ground in the presence of God. Humble yourself. And Moses grabs his head in fear and fright. But he must have also been torn for us. I'm not forgotten. I've been running for my life, but my God has not forgotten me. I'm a Hebrew born to Hebrew slaves, and our people have been crying out to you, Lord. I, I, I tried to bring uh, deliverance when I struck down an Egyptian. I, I tried to do it my way, and I thought I was forgotten. I thought I was outcast. I know I'm a fickle man who's going to doubt you and full of sin, and yet you remember me. And God calls his name 
Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. He repeats the, the what he's seen, the why he's going to do this. And he says to Moses in verse 10 of chapter 3, Come, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Come with me. Will you follow me into this mighty moment in history? Will you take this leap, this step of faith to say yes to the Lord, no matter what it is he's calling you into doing? Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But, but, Moses, nah, no way. Moses said to God, Moses said to God, in contrast, where you never want to be, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Now I'm just an old man going on older. And I'm just a guy with a little bit of faith that's just real or fickle. I doubt you already. Who am I? I? I tried that. I'm a wanted man in Egypt. How am I to stand before the Pharaoh with a request like this, which will obviously off with my head? Who, who am I to go back to the people who outcast me when I tried to rescue them? Who am I to go? I don't have what it takes. Nah. God is about to flip his world upside down like he does for all of us when he calls us into following his son. With the worst promise you've ever heard. I mean, this is the worst promise you've ever heard from our God. Here it is. Moses says, nah, I will not go. I, I cannot do that. I, I'll certainly die if I go there. And he said, God said, but I'll be with you. And this shall be a sign to you. That I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Do you hear the promise? When I've done it, you'll see that I've done it. You know, well, when I do what I say I'm going to do, then you'll know that I was going to do what I said I'm going to do. This is the worst kind of earnest money you could ever give. You, you know, you go to a purchase for a house, right? And you say, I'm going to buy your house for $400,000. And the, the seller says, that's great you say that. What are you going to put down that I know you're going to do that? Well, I'm going to put $20,000 down. And if after the study period, uh, I, I, uh, um, you know, I move forward to the contract and I can't execute on the contract, you can have that $20,000. That's earnest money saying, I will do this. And, and it convinces the person on the front end that you will do what you said you're going to do. And Moses looks up to God and says, where's the earnest money? How do I know you're going to do this? And God says, when you're on this mountain right here, worshiping with the people you brought out of Egypt, then you'll know. <laughs> That's when you, God kind of in a humble swagger says, I'm the God of promises. I want a preemptive yes from you. Trust me in who I am. Not even what I'm calling you to do or how I'm calling you to do it. Who I am is enough for you to trust me in it. A preemptive yes, he calls from Moses, and he calls on us. See, this earnest money thing, it's the very reason we've lost two bullseye opportunities here in Silver Spring. It, people have said, here's a property that we are actually very interested in you buying. And we said, we will buy it. And they said, that sounds great. Where's the earnest cash? The cash up front. And we said, we don't have it, but we're going to do this. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> 
and two perfect bullseyes have passed us. And thank our God that he does not operate as real estate agents or banks. He says, what I will do, I am going to do. You can count it good as done. Everything I call you into, I will provide. That's our God. That is our God. And he asks of us then a preemptive yes based and sourced in his promises, who he is and his character. It was about midway through quarantine when a friend of mine sent me this video. It's just my favorite video uh, in quarantine. You know, this is about uh, midway through when you're getting, uh, you and your spouse are just grinding on each other. And it's like, oh, man, more quarantine. And your kids are running around wild. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And, and my friend sends me this video. Because of coronavirus, you are going to be quarantined. But you have a choice. Do you? A, quarantine with your wife and child, or B, B. <laughs> B. B. because of coronavirus, you are going to be quarantined, but you have a choice. Do you A, quarantine with your wife and child, or B, B. <laughs> B. B. <laughs> because of coronavirus, he's like, A, you're going to quarantine with wife and child, or B, 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 I want B. <laughs> he doesn't even need to see, hear what's said or what, what he's going to be asked about, right? Like, I want that. Yeah, yes. And the God of all creation who has come down to rescue his people stands before Moses, stands before you and me. He's rescued us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And he says, what else do I need to prove to you? Will you follow me? And may, You might be a mom and you're just wrestling and you're, you're sensing the Lord is calling you. I, I, I want to be home and disciple my kids in this youngest years. And you're feeling drawn into that, and, and you're like, no, what, how, yes, yeah, B, B, yes. As an employer or as a boss, you, you, you know, you're thinking, man, I, I want to be a little more bold, a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend, and I, I want to move towards them. I want to start sharing the gospel with them, but man, what are they going to say? How are they going to respond to that? Yes, 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 what might we do? And the back end of our preemptive yes. That's what he's called every one of us to. First to say yes and then to see how he brings it to fruition. Why would we see yes, say yes? The very reason that Moses said yes. We, we see this captured for us in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses saying yes. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months from his parents. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And get this, here he says it. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking forward to the reward. He, he said, the glory of my God, the riches of my God, who my God is and what he is calling me into, even reproach for my Savior, even being shamed for knowing and loving this glorious God and living for him, that's way better than, than anything else a no could offer me. Staying in Egypt, living for me, living for my riches, my advancement. This, this is way better, the glory of God, seeing him, knowing him, living for him, and seeing him provide for everything he is calling me into. That is way better. This is the first reason we say yes. We want to live for his riches, his glory, his purposes, not our own. And what we'll see is when he calls us into it, he will provide from start to finish. 
The second reason we say yes to our Lord is life transformation. I mean, the, the transformation that occurs, occurs in, in a disciple of Christ when he or she keeps saying yes to the Lord is off the charts. It's off the charts. Start, you want to kind of get outside of your myopic me universe, right? Start saying yes to the Lord when he says, serve this person, serve that person. When he says, hey, take a dip into foster care, take a dip into foster care. When he says, give your money that this low-income school can be cared for, give your money that. And when he says, go mentor in that school, go mentor. When he calls you, when he says, go reconcile that relationship, go do it and see what he does and how he works. Your life will be transformed and others' lives will be transformed too. So many of you said yes over the years and, and have given faithfully and served faithfully. We got to send out a church. Uh, then in that church, we saw a, a child soldier come to know Christ from Sudan. He ends up here, hears the gospel, is rescued. Then over the years has come uh, free from alcoholism. Life radically transformed. Man, because lots of people over lots of time just kept saying yes to little things and huge things. By his grace. And then I think when 100% of us say yes, we will get to see him provide a permanent space for the well to transform lives for generations to come. Uh, see, when we say yes with generosity, he, I, I, I am certain he will bring in the cash necessary for him to provide for us any space that he so chooses and the time he chooses that we could take root here as a church for generations to come to demonstrate and declare his gospel. Uh, this just came on the radar a couple weeks ago. This is a property right in the heart of downtown Silver Spring. It's expensive. It's $4.9 million. And but what would it look like if God raised through his body enough cash that we could find ourselves in this space and on that top level build a sanctuary where 300 men and women could, could worship our Savior together for generations to come? And then on that bottom floor in the basement, uh, we'd see 18 classrooms filled with kids and students and, and then used throughout the week in counseling and foster care training and outreach and food services to care for our city around us. What would it look like? And also there's a bank there that, that would keep paying us $12,000 a month so we could make the mortgage easy. <laughs> what would it look like if our God called us into something we couldn't do and then did it himself? What might be captures us because we won't see what could, we could see if we don't say yes. You know, I thought, man, well, how is he going to do this? This is a pandemic. This is the worst time to do something like this where we call our body to generosity. This is ridiculous. We didn't even have a building. Then God says, well, what about this one? It might not be this one, but he's not out to shortchange us. It might be some other one. And then I said, well, what about the cash? And, and we just start sharing, you know, just we hadn't even begun the series, right? Two weeks ago, a guy hears about it in the body. He goes, hey, I want to give $5,000 of stocks to it. Whoa, and he gives $5,000 of stocks to it. This Friday, a, a friend of mine, this Friday, just a couple days ago, a friend of mine says, hey, I want you to talk with one of my friends who heard about what's going on at the well, and he, I think he wants to get involved financially. I said, great. So, <laughs> of course, I said, great, right? So I call him on the phone. I'm talking to this friend, and the friend that uh, he introduced me to, I'll just call the guy Bud. And Bud hears about, hears about how this intelligence officer who never would have heard the gospel otherwise heard the gospel here and then was wrapped up in community and gave his life to Christ and has transformed the entire family. He heard about this doctor who was going to move towards suicide and going to commit suicide, but God averted it and poured grace on him and connected him in the community here at the well. And he 
heard about two doctors who brought, uh, two scientists who brought their daughter here to be baptized, then realized, man, we don't even know if we believe the gospel. They started reading the scriptures and then said, I believe the gospel, and got to dunk both of them in the water. And this guy, Bud, says, man, it sounds like God's doing quite a work there at the well. I said, man, he's doing an amazing work. What a people. I hope you can meet him someday. And he said, here's $50,000. Wrote a check for $50,000. We won't see what we could see if we don't say yes. Wherever you are in your life right now, whatever God is calling you to, as a mom who, who says, man, I'm a single mom, and I don't know what it's going to look like to go back to work. How is God going to care for my family you go back to work? Or as a, a dad who's working tireless hours, and you say, I don't know what it would look like to cut back or even quit my job so I could be at home and help with the kids. And you say, I don't know how he's going to provide. And that, or as you, you, you live next to this guy or this gal who doesn't know Christ, you say, I don't know what will happen if I share the gospel with them or build a relationship with them. You don't know what God will do on the back end until you say yes. He'll blow you away. Everything he calls us to, he provides. It was about nine years ago. We were in Dallas, Texas. I call it my years in exile. This is home, Howard County here. And I had a sweet leather couch and a nice office with big windows. I was working at a, a big Dallas church, which I love to this day. That church is a great church, Ascending Church. And God started pressing it in my heart and Courtney's heart and mind. Maybe you're called to go to... Silver Spring, where they hate pastors, <laughs> and it's secular, and it's expensive. And we were hearing him call, and we're like, should we go? And then we said, yes, and I've tried to screw it up so many times. I, I, I almost quit once when my son went into middle school, but I saw God provide even more profoundly then for his relationship with other believers and his faith, and I'm shocked by it now. But I remember talking to little Jacob when he was little. We were right out in front of the Penske truck, and and here's what we said that day. We moved from Dallas uh, to Silver Spring. Jake, or what do we have here? A moving truck. What? A moving truck. Why do we have a moving truck? Move all of our stuff. Where are we moving to? Maryland. We're moving to Maryland? Why are we moving to Maryland? To plant a church. To what? To plant a church. Oh, but really, why are we moving? You hear what little Jacob said there? He said, why are we moving to Maryland? First he goes, to plant a church. And I said, well, what, really, why are we moving? And he goes, to tell people about Jesus. And man, the work God has done as each of you have kept telling people about Jesus and saying yes to Jesus over and over again. Nine years ago, we were just like 30 people in our basement. Watch, watch us sing. This is the well in the basement of our house in a little suburb of Silver
don't see what we could see if we don't say yes. Wherever you're at in your life right now, you will not see what you could see if you don't say yes to the Lord. One of those gals that was singing in that basement there came to worship uh, last hour, and it's the first time she's been in a, a year and a couple months, and she's weeping. And she just says, oh, what a church we had. For the whole year, what a faithful church we've had, saying yes to the Lord over and over again. You know why? She never felt alone this whole time because her community group, her church, wrapped around her and she around them. And they all just kept saying yes to the Lord over and over again and seeing the Lord provide for one another and provide through them for lives transformed. Our church kept giving through this past year. Praise our God. We were just 20 people in this little basement years ago. Right before the pandemic, we were 350 strong, worshiping the Lord in two services in this building. And now we're 14 community groups all scattered throughout the city, 45 community groups, uh, uh, 3D groups in them for discipleship, uh, over a $600,000 budget. And look, who cares about all the numbers? Lives are being transformed. Church, I think we are at a preemptive time to say yes, and his promises are sure from his gospel to every good work. In the gospel, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that the one who has all the riches in heaven came down, made himself poor, that we who are poor might become rich. He provided, he said, be holy, he called us to, and we couldn't, and he said, I'll give you my holiness. He said, be my son or daughter, faithful to me. And we couldn't, we're orphans. And he says, I'll make you my son, I'll make you my daughter by the death of my own son. He says, be strong and courageous and live in the power of the resurrection. We said, we're dead people. And he resurrected to life to give us new power in the spirit. And then he says, for every good work, even 2 Corinthians 9, 8, everything he calls us into, he says, what am I going to do? I'm going to provide for it. Every good work. Church, we are at a time for a preemptive yes to our Lord. As people individually who follow him, as our church collectively, as we seek him for the generosity necessary, that when he brings that next building or location for us to permanently sink roots, we might be able to say yes to him then, because he has poured out his resources preparing us for that day. Our Savior is so amazing. Right before his death, you know what he did? He looked at his disciples and said, here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> he says, I'm going to die in your place. I've lived a perfect life in your place. You can have my righteousness. When I die, I'm gonna, it's going to be a sacrificial death in your place. And then I'm going to rise to newness of life. And they said, no way. How do we know you're going to do it? And he's like, when you see me do it, you're going to know I did it. That's our God, our promise-keeping God, who in Christ has provided for everything he has called us into. So this morning, if you're out there and you have not trusted Christ, you've not said yes to the Lord, would you realize this morning that his body was broken, his blood was spilled, and would you say yes to him? Would you respond to his grace and begin that, that pivotal moment of just receiving the Lord and saying yes to him? And watch him just change your life and transform you upside down as you live for his glory, not your own. And if you've been following him, would you remember this morning that he has kept every promise in Christ? What else do we need but trust him? And whatever it is that he's calling you into this morning, would you say yes preemptively? 
you know what he has done. You know his, his death on the cross, his blood spilled, his body broken, and his resurrection for newness of life. And would you remember again this morning, oh, what a Savior we have. Yes, 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 I'll follow him wherever he leads. We come and be reminded of his grace, that everything he's called you into.